1: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way
2: it should be convenient, comfortable. Ah.
3: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access access to not only our great daily newsletters, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation That is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. A quick reminder that if you like this podcast, subscribers get an ad-free version of the show that comes out on Monday, four days before all the other chumps and their public release. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me is the notorious Elon Musk apologist, Jeremy Goldcorn, <laughs> a.k.a. Jimmy, who recently argued with a distinct gleam in his eye that his fellow white South African and his apparent feckless management of Twitter was actually a Schumpeterian act of creative destruction and that from Twitter's ashes will arise something far, far Worse for American culture and political discourse. Jeremy, <laughs> greet the people, won't you?
1: I love people. And I think you're misconstruing my argument. I, I think uh, it will be great if he destroys Twitter. But yes, indeed, the next thing is bound to be far worse. <laughs> it always is. It
3: always is. We're delighted to be joined today by Diana Shoileva and Denny McMahon, who co authored a recent study on China's push for RMB internationalization, which will be our topic of discussion on this episode. The report, which was prepared for the Wilson Center, is titled China's Quest for Financial Self-Reliance, How Beijing Plans to Decouple from the Dollar-Based Global Trading and Financial System. Diana Shoyleva is Chief Economist and Founder of Inodo Economics, an independent macroeconomic forecasting consultancy that she set up in 2016. She joins us from London. Diana, welcome to Seneca.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Can't wait.
1: Denis McMahon is a veteran journalist who spent many years at the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of China's Great Wall of Debt and spent some time working at the Paulson Institute's think tank, Macropolo. Denis, welcome to Seneca.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here.
1: So, Diana, let
3: me start
0: with you with a very simple
3: question. I've heard it said that the U.S. enjoys an extravagant advantage by the very fact that the dollar... Is the global reserve currency of choice and the main currency of settlement for international trade, but i've always assumed that, that that's true uh, what precisely though is that advantage? Is it just guaranteed demand for dollars uh, and that you know makes deficit spending that much easier what's the advantage
2: that is the advantage exactly as you phrased it the u s is able to borrow at much lower cost and doesn't necessarily though set its monetary policy in the interest of the rest of the world. Mm. And so some of the pushback originally from China was, in particular after the global financial crisis, that it's not prudent for the world to have just one reserve currency. And actually at the time the Chinese were talking much more about a multi-currency world. Uh, in which uh, there is, and even suggesting something like uh, the SDR.
3: Special drawing rights. Yeah, maybe you can explain what that is for people.
2: Yeah, special drawing rights at the IMF. Um, So, but but, but the, the story has changed really since the arrival of Xi Jinping, because China changed dramatically under his leadership and is on a path of decoupling itself and trying to achieve... Self sufficiency and self reliance, and that goes across all sectors of the economy, including the financial sector. So now it's much more about the geopolitics, and China feeling it's a, a huge disadvantage by being so dependent on the dollar based global financial system.
1: Mm. May I ask, perhaps, Denny, um, aside from Xi Jinping and uh, you know his very clear. Uh, focus on uh, China's self-reliance. What else has changed that Beijing came to see the dollar's global dominance as such a major strategic vulnerability for China?
0: Well, I think the big thing over the last couple of years in particular has been the use of the United States and more broadly its, its allies of the dollar as a weapon. Now, that's something that's been building gradually over the last 20 years. I mean, you know, the US has gradually excluded both individuals and institutions and also almost entire economies from the use of the dollar system. So if we're kind of looking at the, the shortlist that had the dollar weaponized against them, it's, it's places like Iran, North Korea, uh, Afghanistan. But I think the really big one was after Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. Um, just the sheer scale of the financial sanctions that were imposed on Russia. For all intents and purposes, Russia's central bank and its financial institutions, and by extension, so many of its firms just aren't in a position where they can use the dollar anymore. And so China kind of looks at that and realises that this is kind of an, an extra quiver in the American arsenal of, of repercussions that, that it can kind of deploy in whatever manner it, it sort of sees fit. And so I, I think there is a, a concern given the potential for you know, rising tensions over Taiwan in particular that conceivably one day China could be on the receiving end on a comparable suite of financial sanctions. And so the only way that China can really insulate itself against those sorts of measures is to be less reliant on the dollar and the only way to be less reliant on the dollar is to kind of is to use a, another currency and ideally a currency over which it has control and that is really there's only really one option and that's the renminbi so i think if you kind of take what diana was saying on the whole issue of of monetary policy on one level china is becoming increasingly frustrated with the way that the us you know sets uh, sort of global monetary conditions, and at the same time, there's this wariness that you know, one day the Chinese economy might not be allowed to function properly because of of U.S. financial sanctions. All of a sudden, there is this real impetus and this real urgency to decouple from the dollar, the dollar financial order, uh, because of the, there are some real risks involved.
3: So, Dini, I understand the urgency after the Russian invasion, but you know, long before February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. Beijing has been pushing for r m b internationalization it's It's a decade ago I mean it was really after the the financial crisis first, right surely also Beijing wasn't the only other uh economy that was chafing under this you know that that found it really alarming how the u s had to begun weaponizing the power of the dollar through financial sanctions, as you say and it's not only ones who were directly targeted but there were others who maybe might find themselves in the crosshairs probably want to do that was Beijing though alone in pursuing internationalization of its own currency or were there others who were trying as well
0: over the last well however many years it has been a goal of a lot of other smaller countries in the region as well I mean certainly in Southeast Asia I think the Thais and Malaysians also have those sorts of ambitions um and, and certainly, you know, in, in the past, in the 1980s and certainly the early 90s, the Japanese had a, a strategy as well for trying to promote the internationalization of their currency as well. But for the most part, it's not really an option for most countries you know, around the world because there's real costs involved. Internationalizing your currency really means getting foreigners to be willing to transact in a currency that's not their own. Right. Now, most foreign nations, most tr- foreign trading companies and financial institutions are willing to do that in the dollar and to a lesser extent the you know the euro because the costs involved in using those cu- those currencies are, are, are relatively low. I mean, that's the great thing about the dollar. You know, it, in some ways because you know, the, the dollar is so entrenched as the global currency because it's so entrenched because it's so entrenched Um, because there are so many dollars globally available everywhere it's always going to be cheaper to use the dollar than perhaps almost any other currency and when i say cheap I, i mean that that cost effectiveness exists on a whole lot of different levels. So on, on one level, it is the the sort of the 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 spread or the rate that a bank will charge you to change one currency into the into another. Right. So to change your currency into the dollar, it's always going to be you know pretty cheap rather than to change your currency into, you know, say, you know, Indian rupees or, or something something else. And then of course the other thing is for trading companies that have to hedge their foreign exchange risk, what they want is Really well priced and cheap uh, forwards contracts. Uh, the other thing that they need is uh, you know, readily available and cheap trade financing. And given how cheap it has been to borrow in the dollar for years, you know, again, that's been another sort of. Factor of reinforcing, you know, the dollar's primacy. Diana, you know, one of the things I've always found difficult to understand
1: about the idea that China will internationalise the rmb is that there is literally a communist on the money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Chairman Mao. Uh, so, I mean, it always seems to me that there's going to be a deficit of trust in market based economies. And I, I'm being slightly facetious, but I mean, has something changed in the last couple of years? I mean, does China now have any advantage or any greater trust in the world that it didn't have, say, back in the years following the global financial crisis?
2: Uh, No. On the contrary, actually, we are living in the world of the great decoupling, which was uh, and has been our key investment thesis for the past uh, three years and uh, in that world uh, the financial systems will also bifurcate uh, and so it becomes a question of who will end up in China's sphere of financial sphere of influence and why. Um, and um, one issue in choosing uh, which currency you're going to use whether for payments or investment is the issue of trust. Uh, and uh, it 's extremely unlikely that it will be the u s adopting the the r n b and the way China sees this at the moment is that um, it wants in particular the asian region to to become the center of um, both trade and finance for the Asian region, and you know ideally, in an ideal case, uh, as far into Europe as possible um, and obviously Africa is part of the mix but but you know in some ways less important part, and when it comes to that. Then you're looking of, um, you know, not just the issue of trust, but what Dini was saying of how to convince those countries that for whom it is cheaper to transact in dollars, to transact in the yuan. And the first, you mentioned that uh, China started internationalizing the RMB uh, shortly after the global financial crisis, and they failed. They failed, uh, you know, by their own admission, because, um, you know, it was large. Any interest that there was there was predicated on the expectation the yuan will rise. And once that went out of the window, uh, we actually saw a decline in the share of um, uh, yuan used for China's uh, overall exports and imports. So now they have a new strategy because of this imperative to have self-sufficiency and be able to withstand um, and have their own geopolitical sphere of influence. They have this imperative to achieve this one way or another. And what we found in our report was that originally we were thinking that we'll spend a lot more time on on the payment system, on on maybe looking at more de- in more depth at the digital currency and what all that means. But actually, we found that it was how they thought of ways to incentivize their partners, trading partners, to decide to transact in yuan despite it being that much more expensive?
3: So that's the question that we're going to get to right after this one. So we're going to talk about, you know, what China is doing to try to incentivize its partners to actually use the yuan to increase demand for the yuan. But first, I want to understand this. You said. China is trying to achieve this, but I want to get a clear idea of what it is that China is trying to achieve. Does China seek to turn the yuan into just a currency that's comparable with you know, the pound sterling or the Japanese yen in its importance, one that countries want to hold as part of a diverse basket of currencies, or is the game plan really to truly supplant the dollar? How should we try to right-size China's ambitions in this regard, Diana?
2: It's in the middle of what you described. It wants to achieve more the position of the euro, if you'd like.
3: Ah, I see. Okay. To
2: be, I mean, at its its most simple, it wants to be able to buy what it needs from the world in yuan and using its own payment systems. So it is not (laughs) going to be sanctioned by anyone. Of course, that's at the extreme because China wouldn't be necessarily buying everything it needs from from only its sphere of influence. But think of it as the Yuan being at the center of China's trading block. And how that block ends up, or who ends up being part of that block, will very much depend on what China needs, but also whether it has leverage over those countries.
3: Fantastic. Denny- so let's start with you and, and and talk for a little while about what China is trying to do to increase demand for the yuan in international markets. You mentioned the importance of futures markets in, in commodities uh, as being really key to its eventual success. So can you unpack all that? What is China trying to
0: do to increase demand for the yuan? So the way to think about it is is this. So when they launched Renminbi Internationalization in 2009, for about the first eight years, the way they went about it was giving foreigners and giving Chinese, giving everybody, the opportunity to use the RMB for cross-border trade, for cross-border investment. I mean, previously there wasn't really any chance to use the Chinese currency outside the borders, and so initially, that first wave of internationalisation was giving people the opportunity to do that—to you know, pay RMB for Chinese goods, for Chinese importers to pay in foreigners in RMB, for you know, foreigners to invest in Chinese capital markets. In, in Hong Kong, you could save in in Hong in, in Renminbi and you know, Chinese companies were investing bonds in Hong Kong denominated RMB. All of a sudden, you started building up. A, kind of the, an ecosystem for the use of renminbi outside of China's borders but what didn't happen is although we gave the world China gave the world the opportunity to use renminbi it didn't actually give them a reason to do it uh-huh. and so as Diana was saying that's what's been happening pretty much since mid-2017 it's like what can China do to give people Uh, an incentive to use renminbi, particularly in an environment where it's always going to be cheaper to use the dollar because the renminbi is not going to be able to compete on cost until the day that you've kind of got these huge pools of renminbi outside of Chinese borders comparable to what the US dollar has at the moment, which is really what helps keep the dollar so cheap. So something else has to happen. And so somehow China has to get renminbi flowing out of the country, and then flowing back in that sort of circle of life. um, It's to to kind of make it an international currency. And they're doing it in two main ways. So in terms of getting renminbi flowing uh, into the country, the focus is very much on what's called the financial account. So it is getting foreigners to invest in Chinese stocks and bonds and financial assets. And the focus here is pretty much they've done that by imposing rules. So at the moment, if you are a foreigner and you want to invest in Chinese capital markets, pretty much you have to do it using renminbi. And what I mean by that is back in the old days, if you were buying Chinese A shares or whatever, you'd take your dollars and you would bring them on shore to China and then you would change them into renminbi and you would buy you know, stocks listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Now, under a whole lot of programs that have been rolled out over the last few years, so, you know, the Stock Connect program, the Bond Connect program. Now, we've got a Swap Connect and a Wealth Management Connect program. Under those rules, you can't bring dollars into China. You have to source renminbi from outside of China, probably in Hong Kong, and then bring the renminbi into the mainland. So that's the first thing they've they've done. They've effectively imposed rules that to invest in China's financial assets, you've got to use renminbi source from overseas. So that's the first side of the equation. That's how they're getting renminbi to flow in. The other side of the equation is how do you get the renminbi to flow out? And the focus here right. has been very much with trade, getting foreign foreigners to accept payments um, you know, from Chinese firms uh, in renminbi. And the focus here is going to be I mean what China's trying to do here is effectively change the way global trade flows work. I mean this is a long-term project. So what what countries is it targeting first in in this?
3: I mean what countries is it hoping to encourage people to accept the RMB? The other
0: specific geographies is this are we talking about Russia, Central Asia? Well, if it's the the focus it'd be very much countries from which it buys First and foremost, um, natural resources. And it'd be countries right. broadly in its sort of BRI, Belt and Road Initiative orbit. Right. Um, and countries that it exports finished goods to. Uh, less so. I think the focus at the moment is less about getting foreigners to pay for Chinese exports in renminbi, although ultimately that's the goal, right? Long-term goal, they want exports and imports, all of it denominated in renminbi. But in the short term, the focus Mm -hmm. is very much about getting renminbi flowing out of the country through trade. And so this is about Chinese firms being able to pay renminbi for their oil. For their iron ore, I see. for nickel, for everything else, and it's it's not happening on a large scale at the moment. I mean, it's it's to the extent that it's happening, it's very small.
1: So, yeah, what is how, how, how has the progress
0: been? Well, I think you can't. These are a long-term structural efforts to change the way global trade works, and so you can't really um, sort of you know measure just how successful it's been over the last two years or even even three years. So, I'll give you a couple of examples of what they're trying to do. The first thing is what they really want is to pay for commodities in renminbi, and that's fundamentally difficult because global commodity markets are priced in dollars, and that's the way that it's been since the end of the Second World, really since the end of the Second World War. Global commodities are priced in American, uh, for the most part, in American commodity exchanges, in Chicago and in in New York. And so because the prices for commodities are, are set in dollars, for the most part, those commodities are then traded globally in dollars. So what China wants to do is change that. And they're quite frustrated by the status quo because, you know, in the 1950s, it made in the 60s, it made sense for all this to be done in dollars because the U.S. was producing a huge amount of commodities and it was consuming them at the same time. But the U.S. is no longer at the center of global industry. It's not a big consumer of so many of these commodities anymore, like iron ore or soybeans or so much of what runs the global economy anymore. The focus of that consumption is all on China. China consumes so much more minerals and natural resources than any country on earth. And so the Chinese regulators are like, hey, these things should be priced in China. We should kind of have a much bigger say in how global markets uh, price this stuff. And guess what? That should be done in renminbi. So the vision is like, firstly, given our demand this is where it should happen and secondly what they're trying to do is leverage the you know firstly china has five different commodity markets at the moment you know they all specialize in slightly different things and those markets are incredibly actively traded now the trading volumes on these things are an order of magnitude than even the us markets these days now that's not necessarily a good thing because so much of that trading volume is by day traders it's not really you know a great tool for hedging as yet but the, the vision from the Chinese side is ultimately that these markets will become more professional. They'll become gradually more and more open to, to foreign investment, and then hopefully you kind of get a, a, a shift, a migration of the centre of pricing power from the US to China. And they're doing certain things to try and advance that as well. So there, they, there is a realisation that, you know, the. The demand for industrial inputs isn't something that's static; it changes over time. And particularly as the global economy is starting to shift into a, a net zero, a carbon zero, or more environment-friendly focused composition of industry, then a lot there's a there's a lot of uh, metals and inputs that are going to become more important to the global economy. Things like certain rare earths, or cobalt, and stuff like that. And so China is trying to set up futures contracts for the products of the future in the hope that if they can get in the ground floor now in becoming the epicenter for pricing these things, then it will be in B that will become global and they'll start to be able to slowly this way change how certain commodities globally are priced.
1: So Denny, you, you've talked about the future. Diana, maybe I can ask you about the past. Uh, what happened the last time one currency displaced another? How did the dollar di- displace the pound sterling? <laughs>
2: Actually, my expertise is uh, much more uh, talking about the future <laughs> as a forecaster. <laughs> I mean, I've uh, you know I found over the years that uh, I just you know what I'm good at is is seeing these big major turning points um, and, and often ahead of time. And this is this is one aspect of of this big turning point, this great decoupling. So
1: let me rephrase the question then: Is is this a turning point? Uh, Are we at a turning point?
2: We are already in this turning point. Uh, In fact, you can even go back to the global financial crisis. Um, And I'll answer your other question about the past as well, because, of course, we can only, you know, think about the future by knowing exactly what happened in the past. Uh, I think that's very important and get very frustrated that... uh, uh, economics has been reduced to models, uh, essentially, or to one trying to be one model, whereas the real world doesn't work like that. And all these economic theories that came through over the years, they were addressing specific situations uh, with a a bunch of assumptions. And actually, as an economist, you should be aware of all this economic history and use these as your tools, rather than just, you know, believe in one or the other. So anyway, it's clearly something we're very passionate about. But um, uh, and in that sense, the way that the Chinese are trying to achieve this is very different to everything that has happened in the past, and they would not necessarily follow the same route. Um, so looking to the future, I think we are at a turning, and we have been at a turning point because... <laughs> you take it further back, really, there were two or three big shocks. First of all, we had the fall of the Berlin Wall. uh, And that gave all the euphoria that we were at the point of end of history. Uh, Clearly, now, that's not the case. But at that time, there was a lot of euphoria, which then made the US extend what was its original engagement strategy for China under Nixon to a strategy that would welcome China into the World Trade Organization on the expectation that really they are converging, they will converge in economic terms to the free, liberal, democratic world, and eventually politically as well. And a lot of kind of hubris that the capitalist model won. Simultaneously, actually, during those 30 years, we had the technology revolution. And so, what happened was that that combination um, actually was one that we, the world as a whole, were not able to make happen in the best possible interests of individual nations. Because if you are a Martian, and you're sitting on mars you'll be looking at earth and you really wouldn't understand why we are quarreling right now and why there is so much division because if you look at the past 30 years we have had it the best we've ever had it in terms of you know major wars and conflicts in terms of growth in terms of you know pulling vast number of people out of poverty electrification across the board education levels rising across the board so this has been a very for the global you know, for for the earth being it has been a very good period, but we are all defined by our nationality um, and uh, what happened was that uh, first of all, because China didn't converge fast enough to a free market economy, if China had allowed the yuan to move freely in two thousand and four. We wouldn't have had the buildup of excess debt in the US and in other Anglo-Saxons that then, so so that was then led to the global financial crisis. And there was a lot of misunderstanding and is to this day uh, that it was American profligacy that was the root cause of the financial crisis. That was not the case. <laughs> if, if it was American profligacy, we should have been seeing high real interest rates it was the command economy aspect of China that was causing it to save excessively. And that was dragging globally because it was such a big economy and now so integrated interest rates. And then, you know, it's too rude to refuse if people want to throw cheap money at you. Uh, but at the time, um, you know, having forecast the global financial crisis crisis, uh, I wrote a book in 2006 uh, with one of my colleagues uh, called The Bill from the China Shop. And we were looking into that, looking into, you know, later on thinking about QE and what happened uh, uh, in terms of the adjustment of the global economy. And I made one mistake in the uh, wake of the financial crisis, thinking that this economic eruptions, you know, this inability of the global economy to work efficiently without ending up in a global economic crisis, uh, financial crisis and economic crisis uh, would be sufficient for this decoupling to start. In hindsight, the mistake I made was not to factor in the politics, the fact that this was such a fundamental rewriting the rules of the engagement globally that we needed to have critical political mass for this to happen. Now, in China, Xi coming to power was one part of the equation. But actually, in the Western world, the inequality that was created because, again, of that those dynamics, both in income and in wealth terms, led then to the populist choices of, of Brexit, if you'd like, in, in London, to uh, the arrival of uh, President Trump. And um, what Trump did on the US side by being so politically incorrect <laughs> in, in the way he attacked uh, china was that he made it a free for all for anyone who had a gripe uh, with china to to go after them and he unleashed this uh, you know this feeling in the u s that has been building but didn 't really have an expression and Now we have a much more um, experienced and coordinated team under Biden that uh, is equally hawkish actually. you know, When we looked at the team he gathered at the very start of his presidency, the conclusion was that this will be a team that will continue this type of uh, interaction with China, but that should be more effective uh, in, in doing so. So we've ended up really, I mean, we are now, we have the critical political mass, the economics haven't changed in, in the inability for this uh, to progress, and the technology uh, we are at at a juncture where you could be asking yourself very fundamental questions, including whether the pace of technology will continue at this rate or this bifurcation will pull us back. We could be talking about, um, you know, uh, China and Taiwan and the U.S. and this clash of of, of two an aspiring hegemon and an existing hegemon, and the currency is very much part of that overall. Era of the Great Decoupling. Hmm.
3: Interesting that you uh, you you've locate the the problem basically in the failure of of Beijing to float the yuan that that this gives rise to all of it.
2: Uh, well, what well, well, what happened was that essentially you were integrating two very different economic systems and political system into a global system that was built on the rules set by. The free liberal democratic world. And China was big enough to disrupt that, and it didn't quickly converge to becoming itself a fully-fledged market economy. And that distorted the pricing mechanism uh, and how it informs investment decisions across the globe. And so by them keeping artificially the price of um, capital low, Uh, globally led to a lot of excesses and a lot of misallocation in China, including. And then the, the way the Western system responded post the global financial crisis, which was the right way to do, you know, to try and avoid the deflationary depression outcome. There was bypassing of the banking system and injecting money directly into the economy in order to sustain healthy transactions, that was the reason that is how qe operates it doesn't operate by lowering lowering the long term interest rates and trying to <laughs> to encourage even more borrowing when actually the problem is excess debt uh, but, but a lot of the central bankers didn't really um think about this in uh that way um because that that kind of this is going back to my issue of of in these days at university, you' not really thought properly how monetary economics works, for example, or monetarism, and so you you miss out you know there's very little knowledge uh, on that front in the world but nonetheless um you know at that time, that wasn't a problem beyond the fact that when it became an issue of, of continuously underpinning uh, asset prices. Uh, which of course make wealthy pe- wealthy people wealthier. So the the wealth inequality, the income inequality, just uh, increased as a result because they weren't the supply side changes necessary to to kind of re-energize those economies. But you could even argue that ultimately it was a question of uh, of really globally people beginning to start disentangling, and and none of that happened until until. The population in the Western world was reached a stage where they were voting for, and Trump was a very good populist. He really puts the finger on and knows how to talk to uh, to, to the people who were feeling the brunt of this. Um, and so uh, that, that's how we ended up here.
1: How heterodox are, are those views?
2: Uh, I would say that certainly when it comes to China, that they certainly do not see it that way. Uh, They, in Beijing, they see the US as the culprit. And this global financial crisis was very much um, the impetus for them to really follow their own way, even more so. You know, they lost, there were a lot of people in China who were aspiring towards Wall Street, who saw Silicon Valley, and you saw these and and there was a lot of disappointment afterwards uh in those circles as, way, as well which were much more open to the western world so they saw it as um as a failure of the western system and didn't see at all their role in it
3: well i mean your explanation does seem to strip them of any kind of moral agency it's like you think that that china making you know cheap money available Led inevitably to credit default swaps and to and to subprime lending, right? Which is it just seems that maybe strips them of any moral agency in, in it. So I, I can see why Beijing would, would object. Well, to that. But Beijing we could get very very into the weeds here. Let's let's stick with uh, the, the the topic, which is you know RMB internationalization. Let's let's try to get back onto that because uh, you know we took a little bit of a detour there. Uh, And I want to talk about this, about uh, the digital yuan, which I I don't think is well understood outside of China or even really within China. Um, In your report, you guys write, China's digital currency and cross-border payments system are unquestionably part of Beijing's efforts to promote the internationalization as well. However, they're not driving the process. At best, they play a supporting role. Can you explain what exactly China's digital currency is supposed to do if it's not really driving r internationalization or if it really had nothing to do with R&B internationalization
2: to deal oh, with. It doesn't necessarily uh, have nothing to do, but originally it was very much uh, kind of uh, looked at in uh, the in, in the con- context of the domestic economy and how it would uh, essentially provide the authorities with a lot of power, um, <laughs> an additional source of power Uh, and control over the domestic economy. Now, if they wanted uh, to transact in yuan over their own payment systems, they needed their own payment systems, which they have been creating. So as such, it's a necessary but not a sufficient uh, condition. Where the digital currency comes in is, is two ways. One is that the cross-border payment systems are, across the board anyway, much more costly than the domestic ones, and they, they should be less costly, and technology can bring um, these costs and efficiency to them. So there's a lot of trials, but China is leading, uh, of using the digital currency as uh, Uh, for for cross-border payments. And actually, those will be more efficient and less costly. But again, um, that uh, is um, something that uh, is not sufficient. Uh, It will address the cost issue, but at the end of the day, and and then we can go to your original question about trust, which I think is very important, and, and we didn't really delve deeper into it than we should, um, so so this is in its infancy of, of you know, w- w- what we looked at is ways of, of them using already what they have created, which is a replica of the existing type of global cross-border payment systems and convincing people to use theirs, but doing a lot of work on whether they can progress towards a system that... They will use digital currencies for cross border payments. It will bring efficiency gains. But most importantly, and this is, goes to the nub of the issue when it comes to capital controls, because a lot of the people you'll hear saying that, oh, it doesn't matter the digital currency or, or a paper currency, as long as they keep the closed capital account, then they will never be able to internationalize the RMB. And I think we are looking at it from the other way around, that they're trying to do all these other ways of, of um, making that and maybe more available offshore, bringing costs down, convincing others to use it, opening their uh, capital markets to, to kind of say whoever wants you know, some of our growth, but will they be growing? They can come and use the RMB to buy assets. But if they manage to move to a cross-border system uh, of payments based on digital currencies, the Chinese Communist Party will have, and this is at least 10 years out, uh, they will have a visibility, complete visibility, which will give them the sense of control. Uh, and they will be able to intervene the moment they see a problem. So in these circumstances, they will be much more willing to be having a much freer capital account than um, they have been uh, up until now. So that's, uh, that's kind of the role, if you see what, if you see what I mean. So, so, you know, the digital currency can be a very, very important part of the process, but actually that's, that's much further in the future. Uh, and hmm. uh, before that, uh, since we were trying to forecast the next five years, <laughs> which <laughs> in general is a tough job, you know, anything beyond the next day, it's a tough job. Sure. <laughs> um, so we 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 found out that we ended up a lot less there than than in the other aspects that we wrote about.
1: Um, I see. In, in other words, the the progress with the digital yuan has been much slower than.
2: Oh no! Their progress uh, has been extremely fast. It's incredible. And they've really honed into that and the use of blockchain technology. But they spend a lot of time building their SIPS uh, payment system. Um, And now it's about you know okay we have already an existing infrastructure. How do we convince people to use the yuan? And of course, if they use the yuan, better use the system too. Um, And it's not and they they are rolling out RMB digital yuan very fast domestically so that is is progressing. There are trials internationally on using digital currencies for cross-border payments and actually that doesn't necessarily necessitate the other economy to have a digital currency domestically as long as it has a digital currency that it can do cross-border payments with. Um, So there is progress there but none of this infrastructure is yet built and it took them five years to, to build the SIPs. Um, and that was just replicating existing um, technology, not building, if you'd like, on, on new technology. So just realistically, um, with the best will in the world that they certainly have because of everything we discussed, they just can't progress that that quickly.
3: You said it took them five years to build the SIPs. What's that?
2: The China interbank payment system.
3: And oh, actually, I'll, um,
2: okay. I'll sort of let Dini chip in.
1: Perhaps you could explain that. Is that that's a SWIFT for China, is it?
0: It's a little bit more than that. It is both uh, it, it, because SWIFT is, is essentially just a communication system, it's a way for banks to talk to each other. And then they use the, nat, the national payment mechanisms of, of whatever currency that they're transacting Now, another thing is with SIPS is that it is both a payment platform and a communication platform so um the the beauty of it is that uh you know you can track ideally transact in in renminbi and and there is kind of you know the united states uh shouldn't be able to have any insight into in, in, into what's going on swift plus iban maybe
1: more or less One more follow-up. Diana, you said that if the digital yuan came into use, it would give the Chinese government uh, visibility into what was going on and obviously then a certain amount of control, which would allow them to have the confidence to open up the capital account. But surely the fact that they still have control would mean that nobody would want to use the the digital yuan, because uh, it, it still wouldn't feel freely tradable if they could come in at any time and say okay we don't really like what's going on here we're going to shut this down?
2: Uh, At some point um, that becomes uh, you know you let's let me give you an example you know for the average business or the average person um, in the global financial crisis how many people knew that their deposits uh, were not uh, you know (laughs) were not protected and we had to have governments come in and uh, uh, you know Mandate deposit insurance where it wasn't uh, available. So, um, you know, convenience, ease of use, uh, all of that can can um, come into play, uh, and uh, these considerations can can you know, which are fundamental. You know, you 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 would think that knowing that money in the bank doesn't mean you can have those money <laughs> that they are not necessarily hundred percent uh, protected um should have been you know well known fact but but it wasn't but i think it's important here to bring something else because you're absolutely right that there is a lot of worry with respect to can we get our money out of china because the chinese have not thrown the door open of their financial sector you can get money in but can you get money out and so that's one of the um Resistance to using the or the obstacles to using the yuan at the moment that the Chinese are also trying to find ways of getting the yuan out there and getting it back in without having to deal with that, without having to open up the capital account. And one, you know, Dini talked about futures uh, and their efforts on that front, but there is another very important development that they are pushing, which is leading to this circulation of yuan. And that's basically rethinking how the BRI um, and how they can be a trading hub uh, or, or a, hmm. a focal point of, of their trading zone. They used to think that with the BRI, you know, with all this demand for infrastructure out there, um, those countries will be willing to borrow in Yuan uh, for investment in those projects, but that didn't happen. The majority of the BRI lending for infrastructure investment was in dollars. Uh, And Mm, so the way they're seeing this now is to create this closed loop where they are building industrial capacity in the BRI countries by providing loans in yuan that build that capacity, which then produces something that China wants and needs and will be paying in yuan for, which then will be used to pay back the loan to give them this mechanism of not going for the dollar, but going for the yuan. Right. And so that's the industrial process that they're trying now to roll out across the BRI uh, in order to encourage that circulation of yuan. Simultaneously, and this relates to the experience of Japan, one of the key lessons of how Japan tried to internationalize the yen was that Actually, uh, they found it wasn't, you know, it wasn't working. I mean, just to mention here, the, the Japanese, they didn't have a strategy for RMB internationalization and neither did America. When you ask me about what we learned from the past, China is arguably the first country that has such a strategy. Um, Hmm. But the Japanese found in their experience that because they weren't the final consumer at the time, but just more the transitory point and the final consumer was elsewhere, then the uh, willingness of uh, people to transact was in the currency of the final consumer. So that ended up being the dollar. And so what the Chinese are trying to do is to become the final consumer. For the Asian trading block, and as a result, though I mean not as a result, but to achieve that, they have to become um, the consumer and they have to stimulate domestic consumption. They talk a lot about their one point four billion people and their core eight hundred or what's it eight hundred or four hundred million um I know it's a it's a doubly of the fact, but yeah. anyway, uh, they talk about their middle class and that they're big enough to be this this consumer. But everything that she is doing with common prosperity, dual circulation, and rising toll in the east actually is endangering the rebalancing of china 's economy towards consumer spending. so there are big questions as to whether they will achieve it, but this is the uh, this is what they are trying to do
3: so fascinating absolutely fascinating, so all she we should expect as the continuing likely direction is that they will continue to try to push industrialization in BRI countries uh, that will be done with loans made in RMB that produce goods that, that are desirable in China that will be paid for in RMB and then to get the, the circulation going that way. Uh, very Very interesting. Um, I'm afraid we are running up against time, so I, I want to thank you both. It was a fascinating conversation, Dinny and Diana, uh, really, really interesting stuff. And uh, let me remind everyone that the report is called China's Quest for Financial Self-Reliance, How Beijing Plans to Decouple from the Dollar-Based Global Trading and Financial System. It's from the Wilson Center. Let's move on to recommendations, Uh, but first a word from Jeremy on what you can do to support our
1: work. Please subscribe to uh, the China Project Access. You'll get an ad-free version of this podcast on Mondays, four days earlier than everyone else, two daily newsletters and one weekly newsletter, and access to everything behind our paywall. And with that, let me just uh, have another note of thanks for uh, Diana and Denis for um, making clear a lot of stuff about a, a subject that, for the lay person, is extremely difficult to get your head around.
3: Yeah, it's excellent. I, I highly recommend this report too. It's written very, very clearly.
2: Thank you so much. We put so much effort into into that aspect of things because we know that um, you know that subject can be very. You know, difficult to get your head around, as you said, uh, and especially for people who don't have necessarily a background in economics uh, or the geopolitical folk or business people. So um, so we put a lot of effort into being as clear and as uh, sort of also not to have any moral judgment in there. We're just saying things as they are without, without taking a moral stance of any sort.
3: Well, if dum-dums like us could understand it, then you've done a very good job. So thank you very much. Right, Jeremy? (laughs) Okay. All right. Recommendations. What do you got for us, Jeremy? So
1: mine, as uh, I think is universally known, the American healthcare system is, you know, in many ways really terrible and resembles a Kafka novel. But it's not the only place that's bad. There's a great book by a a guy named Adam Kay called This Is Going to Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor, which... uh, uh, describes his experiences working in the in Britain's National Health Service, the NHS. Um, mm. And if you have kids, uh Adam Kay has also written a book called Kay's Anatomy, which is a very funny guide to the body. Yeah,
0: great, I can great, definitely great second that, that like by
2: the way, because I saw Adam Kay perform kind of like a stand-up uh on the book and it's absolutely hilarious. And it's one of the only books that uh, I, me- you know, we didn't have to convince uh, my boys to read. They just gobbled up the the children's version without any extra enticement.
0: <laughs> yeah, <right>. it's fantastic. <laughs> a double
3: endorsement, excellent. Diana, your turn. What do you have? Well, for I us? mean, what you you, you
2: stumped me a little bit when when you said, you know, doesn't you know, not to be in your professional. <laughs> Uh, life and 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 something uh, from your personal life and and you know it's not something that I I sort of share in um, professional circles but I was reading how important it is for maintaining sort of uh, uh, your brain young and uh, healthy and it's apparently better than chess and so uh, I certainly feel now very good about my passion outside of economics which is dancing all right but uh, so i can recommend to anyone out there uh, that uh, dancing has many benefits including
1: what kind of dancing diana
2: oh well in my case it's kind of a brazilian partner dance uh, that is a very niche so people wouldn't necessarily uh, kind of dance it very widely though funnily enough uh the uk current Treasury Secretary <laughs> has been up, uh, has done this dancing, and I certainly partnered him, uh, you know, fifteen or however many years ago when he was still appearing in that. <laughs> but uh, on balance, uh, you know, it's it's an area where I very rarely meet anyone connected to my professional life.
3: Oh, fantastic. That sounds great.
2: But before, you know, that wasn't really, you know, that's just, you know, keep dancing. I mean, I think it's a great thing to do. But I wanted to recommend a book. And uh, that is because we tend to sort of do this annual. Every year we have our best books on China lists and best films on China and so on. But a book I came across a few years ago that was written uh, in... um, I think in 2005, there, thereabouts. Uh, yes, just to look here. Um, yeah, 2005, by someone called Constantine Menges. And it's called China, the Gathering Threat. If you read this book, it's so prescient at the time in looking at uh, how things were going to develop from a geopolitical point of view um, that I was blown away. Uh, sadly, Constantine died, um, so I wish I was able to meet him. I mean, after reading, you know, I've read so many books on China, as you can imagine, uh, and to yet find one that, that was so amazing after all these more than 20 years of doing this job was, was really very enjoyable for me. So I definitely recommend uh, that book and, and just consider the time it was written and what it said at that time.
3: Interesting. I'm sure I would find much to uh, to disagree with it. him. <laughs> always a good reason to read a book. Especially written in 2005. All right. Dinny, what do you have for us?
0: Uh, I would recommend something I'm reading at the moment. I'm not through it yet, but I, it's it's been on my list of master reads for ages. Um, I'm recommend lombard street by walter badgett I, I you know the former you know the founding uh, editor for the economist i know i'm probably not the first person to even recommended it on, on on this show but um You are, actually. It's 149 years old, but hey, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm finding it fascinating. I mean, it's sort of, you know, as a description of how a central bank should work and how uh, sort of the the evolution of money markets um, in the UK is absolutely fascinating. And I find it particularly interesting because so much of what he writes about is discounting of trade bills, discounting of bankers' acceptances, which is a type of trade financing which doesn't really exist oh it still exists but it's not a big part of global finance these days. certainly not in developed economies but it's still a really big part of the Chinese financial system and so kind of reading about how these things worked 150 years ago um, is fascinating kind of draw, looking, looking at the parallels about how this particular financial product still plays a role in China's financial system how it's used differently how it's used the same so that's something I, I just realized I had a real geek out moment there, but that's something that I would uh, really recommend because I'm enjoying it incredibly. incredibly.
3: We encourage geeking out here. This is is what we're all about. Fantastic. Thanks. Lombard Street. Um, I am going to recommend a television show. Uh, It's a a mini series on uh, Amazon Prime. It's a Western. It's called The English. It stars Emily Blunt and Chaskey Spencer. Uh, Emily Blunt plays a wealthy British lady who's arrived very recently in the US trying to make her way to Wyoming to find the father of her now-deceased child. Uh, Chans- Chesky Spencer plays a Pawnee who's been a scout for the U.S. Cavalry uh, who reluctantly accompanies her. It's really, I mean, I guess really cliche Western words like stark and brutal, uh, but it's really beautifully shot. Really all the things that a modern Western should be. Uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Really beautiful, beautiful television show. So... Thank you once again, Dinny and Diana. Thank you for joining us. Uh, really, really edifying conversation.
2: No, thank you, guys, and uh, we really enjoyed it.
3: Thank you very much for having us. We really enjoyed it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at TheChinaProject.com to tell us how we're doing or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @thechinaproject if Twitter is still around. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully not for much longer. <laughs> yeah, not much longer. Be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Take care.